Welcome to Animals to the Max. I'm your host, Corbin Maxey. This show is about animals and the people who dedicate their lives to them. And welcome everybody back to another episode of Animals to the Max. What's up everybody? I am Corbin Maxey. I am your host. As always, thank you every single one of you out in the world for taking the time to listen to the podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm so excited because we are all new this week with an excellent, excellent interview. I know the last two weeks we've been kind of taking a little hiatus. I've been doing kind of special episodes regarding my recent Today Show appearance, but we are back with a great guest, and I know you guys are going to absolutely love this guy. His name is Zookeeper Rick. I'll tell you what, I've interviewed a lot of people. Uh, I've interviewed a lot of people who have just unique jobs that I'm incredibly envious of, but this guy, to me, has... I, I really think he has the dream job. He is the spokesperson for the San Diego Zoo. I mean, can you imagine the most famous zoo in the world? This is the face of the organization. And just like you right now listening, I had so many questions. Like, how does somebody land not only a job at the San Diego Zoo, but become a spokesperson for one of the most respected facilities in the zoological world? So I had tons of questions. And I'll tell you what, this episode is for all of you out there, even young listeners maybe who want to pursue a career in the animal field, or any of you wanting inspiration, maybe, and you know what, I'm not going to lie, I get a lot of emails from you who listen to the show, and a lot of you say, Corbin, how in the world I've been trying, I've sent out 40 different resumes, I still cannot get a job, help, any advice, this is the podcast for you, never give up, because I'll tell you what, this guy did not, and he has a dream job, you know, I, I love following Zookeeper Rick on social media, I didn't know that he would do this interview, we do something very, very similar, we both appear on these national shows, and it's not that we're like competition, but I just, I don't know. I mean, I didn't know if he would want to talk to me. And you know what? I sent the email out and thought, you know what? It's worth a shot because I'd love to hear his story. And he got back to me immediately and was so eager to do the interview. And it felt like we were just like long lost friends, even though we've never met each other. So uh, it was really, really cool. But um, so yeah, you're definitely going to like this interview. Before we get to the interview, please make sure if you haven't already to subscribe to the show, hit subscribe, leave a comment. That would really help me out. And if you are not already, please make sure to follow me on my social channels at Corbin Maxi is my Instagram and Twitter and also on Facebook just for more information, uh, photos, you know, kind of more discussions on this podcast. So without further ado, I hope you enjoy my interview with Zookeeper Rick. So I've been doing the podcast for a little over a year now, okay? I've inter- okay. I've interviewed many guests, but I have never interviewed someone who does something so similar to what I do. We both, <laughs> I'm serious. Like we both educate people about animals. We both mm-hmm. do these national shows. So right. I cannot wait to talk to you. But listen to this, though. Perfect. You, you're the spokesperson for one of the most credible zoos and organizations in the whole entire world. The San Diego Zoo, San Diego Zoo Global. Dude, do you pinch yourself every day waking up? <laughs> Uh, I wouldn't say every day, but no, there, well, yeah, maybe so. I mean, there's so many times where I'm walking around the zoo or our safari park and I'm just like, this is my office, <laughs> you know, and <laughs> talking to my folks over the holiday break cause they're down visiting. And I was like, you know, look back, if I were to be able to go back and tell my 17 year old self that this is what I'd be doing for a living for the organization that I'm, that I'm doing this for, my head would have exploded, you know. I mean, so, no, I, I have perspective. I, it is a job. It is work. But I definitely have a solid perspective about just how incredibly crazy it is. <laughs> that's my title, and that's what I do for a living. And that, that organization chose uh, many years ago to 
trust me with the brand, uh, essentially. I mean, it's, it, it still blows my mind, yeah. Yeah, okay, I cannot wait to go all the way back because I know my listeners are like, okay, wait a second, how did this guy land? I mean, you really have a dream job. I mean, you do. Yeah, no, no, I, absolutely. I, it's a job that, you know, people say, oh, did you plan on having that? And it's like, no, I never had like, okay, this is my end goal and mm-hmm. this is how I'm going to get there. But if you would have ever said, would you like to do this in the future? I'm like, yeah, that'd be a cool job. You know, it's one of those things that you don't think it's so, it's so, not abstract, but it's just, it seems so surreal that, that, that someone would have that opportunity to have this kind of role that I never would have guessed that I'd have the opportunity to, and then much, much less fill it, you know? So yeah, it's, it's amazing. All right. So let's go way back. Your early childhood. Were you born in San Diego? No. Um, I was actually born in the Los Angeles area when I was six. Uh, my folks moved up to Washington state. I was six. So I went with them, of course. And I, I grew up on the East side of Washington state, not too far from, from where you are. I mean, in the sense of it's closer than San Diego. So, uh, uh just South of Spokane where the Yakima and Columbia meet with the snake, uh, is where okay. I grew up. So okay. my, my childhood was, you know, back then it was like, okay, I'm, you know, after breakfast, I'm going down to the river. Okay. Be home by five. That's when dinner is, you know, and I grew up just playing down in the Columbia River and, and all the wildlife that was there. And I remember, you know, as I grew up and I had a better understanding of wildlife, I would track the deer, track the coyote footprints, you know, and and everything else. And uh, I just, I absolutely loved being around animals. And it wasn't until, I mean, I give you the full, the full history here. It was probably it. Uh, middle school. Uh, it was middle school. And... Um, we were visiting family, and, and even before middle school, you know, I would I would come down. My folks, my grandparents lived here in um, in the San Diego area, and I would go to the safari park, then the wild animal park, with my grandfather because they were members. So although I didn't grow up down here, I have a lot of memories there at the safari park, especially. And then in in middle school, about seventh or eighth grade, I don't remember I was which one for sure, but I was down for spring break, and uh, we went to the LA Zoo, we went to Universal Studios, and every time we went to a place that had some sort of animal interaction immediately my mother and my aunt would be like asking those people how'd you get this job how'd you get this job and most all of them if not all of them said oh more park college and so literally i remember being in the station wagon on the drive back to my aunt's house i'm like i gotta go to more park i don't know what it is i don't know where it is but i gotta go there and this was pre-internet so it wasn't like you just do a quick google search this was like go back home go to your school counselor have them look it up in a paper catalog of colleges Yeah, that's how old I am. <laughs> no, but it, I remember. I remember Moore Park. I was a sophomore in high school. I feel like I'm still in your story. And I found out about Moore Park, and yeah. I was like, "Holy crap!" But then back then, I, they had a website. It was like a really, you know what I mean, very dated site. But I remember, like, I couldn't believe there, a place existed like that. Yeah, well, and the the only way I could figure out to find out more about it, other than what the address was and the phone number to call to to uh, to get more information, I sent it. So I'm in middle school. I sent in my application to the college. Because um, that way they would send me the information. Okay, here's everything you need for the program. So it was an inquiry package of how to apply to the Exotic Animal Training Management Program. Obviously, I was too young at the time, but it allowed me to look through that requirements and look for what they needed in in a student. And I set then my course uh, through high school. And that's where I'm going. And this is what I'm going to do. And I, you know, I recognize. I'm very lucky. I'm one of the very few people in this world that in middle school knew exactly what they wanted to do. I mean, not exactly, but at least to that degree to go, that's the college I'm going to. And that's then after I'm done, I'm going to be working with animals. Um, so I was fortunate to have that path and have that drive. And I was, I, and honestly, I, I can't say it enough. I'm super blessed and fortunate. My family always supported me. 
Uh, I remember several times in high school, I had school counselors or teachers. Oh, that's that's people don't really have that for a career. You have to pick a realistic career. And I never took that as an oh darn, or I never took that as a you know. I never took it as anything other than, well, they don't understand. They don't know. They haven't done the research that I have to know that you can't have a job doing that. And that's not their fault. They just don't know. Mm-hmm. So that's how I took it. I never took it as someone trying to pull me down or a negative or, a, oh, I, maybe I should think of something else. It, it was never that. It was just, oh, they don't get it. Um, went to Moore Park in the early 90s. And uh, right after graduation, got my first job uh, working uh, the animal show at Universal Studios. So I was uh, doing training work over the summer after I graduated. And I, I quickly realized that uh, that's not the job for me. And it was interesting because it was a it was a real sort of aha moment in understanding myself. And what I got exposed to in Moore Park was so many different things. And I just love the whole experience. It's a program that you get out of it what you what you put into it, basically. Yeah, really quick. And, and, and I'm not trying to interrupt you, but I have yeah, to go, yeah. I have to go back to Moore Park because I wanted to go. Oh, certainly. So bad, yeah. and I was denied. No, I'm, I'm just kidding. I wasn't denied. I uh, <laughs> I wasn't denied. I couldn't go because I had my own animal rescues. I was kind of stuck in Idaho with my animals that I rescued. I, That's a big responsibility. Yeah. And it was something I took on, and I couldn't really just pack up and go to California, but of course, tell the listeners if they are unfamiliar about Moore Park, please. And then just talk about your experience, just about what it was like attending one of the most famous, I mean, I, I, in my <laughs> mind, schools regarding animal training. Yeah. You know, and to be fair, there, there are two really well-known schools that offer very similar programs. And then I, I say this as someone who's a graduate from Moore Park. I also now teach part-time back at Moore Park, but I also wanted to let people know there's a place called uh, Santa Fe Community College, and it's over in Gainesville, Florida. Uh, thank you. I, I, my, I was about to say Gainesville, but I was like, is that the right one? My friend's um, husband is the director over there. Oh, perfect. So then you know about it. Yeah. And so I always like to give them a shout out, too, because I've heard I've never been there, but I have met graduates from that program and I've heard great things about that program. And I always talk a lot about Moore Park because I've been through it and I teach there. So I always want to make sure I toss out that one, too, just for people to know there's more than one option and to give them a fair shake as well, because really, there's only two in our country that have that program. That's that's pretty hard to get into either one. So, yes, the Moore Park experience when I went through is very different than uh, what it is now. Um my my experience when I went through at that time, you when you applied, they would select, I believe, if I remember correctly, about 100 applicants to interview. They would interview you. So I had to fly down from Washington for the interview. Um, and then from the interviews that occur, on, on, it's a panel of people that interview you, they would select 50 students to go into the program and 10 alternates, just in case anyone could make it. And so I was fortunate enough to be selected. Um, and I really have to throw this out there. I think part of what helped with that selection was that I had had the opportunity to uh, do an internship at the Woodland Park Zoo in Seattle for the summer working with primates. So I think that that helped quite a bit. Um, that being said, now, so anybody listening now, please know that's not how they do it. Um, the state basically said that you can't do a, a selection for a school that's part of the community college programs. So it's done by lottery now. So you have some people who apply and they get in right away and others, they may have to wait a couple of years just because the way the lottery cycles and works. And that's the way they legally have to do it. Um, so that, that, there's that. But uh, they still accept, I believe, 50 students a year there at Moore Park. And it's a two-year program. I, I tell people it's much more like a vocational program than a four-year bachelor's degree. So they have their own functioning zoo on grounds, similar to the Santa Fe uh, College has as well. There's animals there that are exotics. And essentially, the students run the zoo. The, there are staff there that oversee and train. But when you first 
start your experience in the program, you're trained a lot by the staff, but also then the second years mentor you or the, the students that have been there for one year already. And you do a lot of the grunt work. A lot of people think animal work, as you know, is cute, cuddly, and fun, and that's only maybe 10% of it, if you're lucky. The rest of it is hard grunt work, labor, cleaning, feeding, and all this stuff, no matter the weather, and you learn that at Moore Park. I I sometimes refer to it as zookeeper boot camp. You're up there working, starting work at 6 a.m., about two hours of labor there at the zoo to clean, feed, take care of the animals, and you jump into your class cycle, usually around 8 to 8.30, uh, noon, you get around noon, anyhow, midday, you get a lunch break, you check on your animals, you do rounds, et cetera, and then back into the schoolwork until usually about four, um, sometimes a little later, depending upon the, the day or the course. And then you're there usually till 6 p.m. doing p.m. stuff with your animals. And then you go home and you do all your coursework because it's college level coursework. They cover veterinary medicine, not full veterinary, uh, you know, like doctor, but they cover veterinary medicine, anatomy, um, diversity. You have to learn all the scientific names. I mean, the, the class I teach, wildlife education outreach you know we talk and focus a lot on the taking of animals safely and appropriately off grounds to programs and then bringing them back and everything that goes into properly training for that uh, and working with animals at the same time as you know from your experience (laughs) handling animals and speaking at the same time is a learned skill that needs to be practiced i think you i think to be good at anything you have to put in ten thousand hours plus and i think you'd agree with Uh, me yeah Yeah. oh sure sure you know and it's one of those things too if you're it, it because it is uh it is work and as a skill, if you don't enjoy it, you're probably not going to get good at it. Where someone like me, I love it. I'm passionate about it. I took every opportunity to do it. So now I feel I'm at a proficiency level that's pretty good because, I mean, geez, for the last several decades, it's just like, yeah, talking about animals to people, sure. Okay. Yeah. Where do I go? Yeah. So, yeah. So that's essentially, I mean, a real quick nuts, sort of nutshell of what Moore Park is. So after your two years, you get out of a, uh, a certificate of graduation that applies to an associate's or bachelor's if you already have that. But there's not an actual degree involved in and of itself just going through that program. And this day and age, most people, most facilities require a bachelor's degree of some sort of science, biology, or animal behavior. So a lot of students will either go through Moore Park first and then go into a four-year program or have come out of a four-year program and go to Moore Park. Everyone kind of has their own path, but usually that, that four-year program's in there somewhere nowadays. Now, I, okay, have you read the book Kick, or Kicked, Bitten, and Scratched? I, when it first came out a long time ago, Me yes, too. it was written by someone who went through the program. Yeah, yeah, I had that, and she was talking about how you all of these students are assigned an animal. Were you assigned a particular animal? Yeah. What was that? You were assigned more than one. Yeah. Okay. So as you as you work through the program into your your first summer there, so your your second year students graduate out in May. So then those who were first years have the summer uh, to run the zoo themselves. And at that point in time, you are you have areas you're assigned to for general zoo care, feeding, cleaning, uh, maintenance, and et cetera, working with the veterinarians. But then you're assigned, I don't remember for sure what the number is now. I think when I was going through, it was about four to six animals, depending upon how much time they required of your attention, would dictate on how many you were assigned to. Uh, so, yeah, uh, you, usually the assignments were every refresh every semester just to give you more diversity of experience. But now the program shift a little more to there's more year-long assignments because they recognize the need for the students to understand how working with animals in the beginning is so different after you have a relationship and bond with them. And that, that does change the level of, of, of work that you, you have, and that experience is unique. Mm-hmm. So, so which animals were you assigned? Oh goodness, uh, I have a handful that I remember very well. One of one of them is still alive, and I love him dearly. Uh, he was actually um, 
Oh, goodness. Um, when I first started Moore Park, if you would have said what animals you're going to work with, I'm like big cats. Yep. I'm, I'm going to be a big cat trainer. I'm, a yep. big, I'm tigers, yep. maybe a lion or two, <laughs> but big cats. Yep. But, but it couldn't have been a couple weeks into it. Uh, one of my second years was like, hey, I'm going to go feed the turkey vulture. You want to go with me? I'm like, I guess. I'm not doing anything, and I want to see an animal, so cool. And probably, I wouldn't say that day, but just seeing him interact with her, I was like, wow, that's I had no idea vultures were so social and had that bond. I was like, wow, that's crazy. She started talking to me about their relationship. And I was like, so I came back the next day for a feeding, the next day for a feeding and the next day. And so then when my summer assignment came around, I'm like, I gotta be on the turkey vulture. Everybody knows that. And he was a, a semester bird. So I requested him for the next semester too. So I ended up being assigned to puppy the turkey vulture oh. my entire time there. And he's still alive today. Uh, still doing his thing. Still looks awesome. I love him dearly. Uh, and he, he really was my first lesson in, um, sort of, you know, keep an open mind to what's out there and that, that there's more interesting things out there than you know about. It blew my mind to learn about turkey vultures. And that kind of set me on the course of going, huh, well, what else don't I know? <laughs> and it kind of opened up that Pandora's box of curiosity about the diversity of the natural world more so than that pinpoint, oh, I love all animals, but I got to work with tigers, you know. So Yeah, I would have been was... disappointed if like going into tigers and then being assigned the turkey vulture, but it's cool that you were able to work with them and actually see how they work because I've worked oh. with vultures and they're awesome. They're great. Oh, I know. But be... So amazing. Yeah. So amazing. Yeah. That's yeah. awesome. So uh, I, I was assigned to a tiger named Raja. Um, we had some coyotes I worked with too. There was another black leopard named so I got my big cat fixed. Uh, a couple of Amazon parrots, uh, serval. I'm trying to think what else. A couple of snakes I really enjoyed working with in my time there. Um, there was one Indian, an Indian python named Ceylon. She was a, a confiscation that was given to them by Fish and Wildlife Services. Gorgeous, gorgeous snake. Real good girl. Um, yeah, I mean, it, you know, the list goes on. And then you get to also be a back. Oh, there's a water buffalo I worked with. His name was Robert the Water Buffalo. Oh, Love him dearly. Man. Uh, he do, was very cool. Do um, they still and, have Clarence? Yeah, do, do they have Clarence, the uh, uh, the, the the big tortoise? Yeah, yes. Okay, I know his name. I'm such a fan. Yes. Wow. Okay. He's still alive. <laughs> Hopefully. <laughs> he should be. He should have his own fan club. <laughs> he should, or an Instagram handle. <laughs> Something, something. Yeah, no, he's great. Clarence is great. He's trained. Uh, it's a slow training session, but he's trained. He knows to go on the scale and do the different things they have him doing. And uh, he's great. A uh, fun side note on that. Um, I used to do appearances at the Home and Family Show for the Hallmark Channel. And I was able to convince uh, San Diego Zoo management and I was able to convince Moore Park that when I go to Home and Family, that Moore Park meets me there with some other animals so we could talk about you know, how, how you get into the world of working with animals. And so it was still about San Diego Zoo, but it was featuring, you know, more park animals. And some of the students came on, too. And we had Clarence there. They rented a ginormous truck that had a, a lift gate. And they walked him into his, his crate. They rolled the crate then onto the lift gate, lifted him in a flatbed, drove him from Moore Park over to Universal. We did the show. He did awesome. And he, they drove back home. Oh, that's awesome. So it was pretty cool. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. So that, but yeah, I mean, it, it's a great program. It, it is a hard program. There are people that, that drop out. There are people that realize that it isn't just cuddling animals. There's a lot of labor in it and a lot of work. And the, the cuddling part is very little. There's a lot of uh, emotion, too. One thing unique about the animal world, and I'm sure you know, having been it for so long, that you know, it, it is a work of passion. You know, you can be an accountant, but are you going to care if your computer crashes? Well, yeah, you'll be mad you've lost some files, but you'll get a new computer the next day and you move on. As long as your files are there, you're happy. We don't have computers we're falling in love with. You know, we these are living creatures. That Some of them were there when they hatched, were there when they're born. Uh, sometimes we see them through the end life because humans live much longer than a lot of the species. 
you know, or they get sick and so you're up all night worrying about them or you go, you're at the vet office with them all night, you know, so it's a different kind of work and some people just aren't cut out for it. I respect that. I respect someone who can look at a career path or look at a, a job and go, Ooh, yeah, not my, not for me. And they can step out knowing that that's not for them instead of trying to pretend it is. So nothing against those who drop out, just saying it, it, it's a program that is strict. It is tough. You got to keep your grades up. Um, but on the other side of it, you've been exposed to so many great opportunities. Yeah. That's so interesting. I had a friend, my first guest I ever had was my friend Val Hershey and she worked at the Woodland Park Zoo. Mm. And well, actually, she she just actually excuse me, I'm um, volunteered, but she saw the behind um, the scenes and she said, "This is not for me." She was too emotional, and she was the first one to say it. It's just right. I'm not cut out for it. It's kind of a dark side when you work with the animals. She didn't, you know, with animals passing away or getting sick, she was just too much. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It, it, it's you know, and it, it can wear on you. Uh, for me, uh, I take such joy in, and it's and it's just me again, no judging anybody else. It's just me personally. I, I, there's moments where, kind of like we were saying earlier. You kind of stop and just assess where you are in life and what you're doing and, and what you're around. And I take such pleasure and joy in being around these animals and, and that, that in my day, there's always going to be some incredible species from around the world. And and I take such pleasure in that uh, uh, and such joy in that in, in deep inside. And so when they do pass away from old age or, or illness and I'm struck, you know, to the core and, and you, you spend, you have a good ugly cry, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, but for me that I also try to choose to remind myself that I'm, I'm that emotionally distraught over this because it was such a great experience up to that point of losing them, you know? And so I, I try to keep that kind of perspective because it isn't easy, but, but it, man, what a wonderful life to be able to experience that range of emotions and have those kind of bonds with other living creatures. So I, I'm thankful for it. Okay. So you graduate from Moore Park and you go on to Universal Studios. Yes. So back. To, oh no! Back and, to the origin story. And, yes. and I, I'm the one who completely like yeah, side skirted no, uh, you. I just had to hear about Moore Park. I was obsessed, and I, apparently I still am. <laughs> no, no worries. Yeah, no worries. Um, yeah. Well, so so it was great. Cause I, I'm the type of person. I'm a big planner. As anybody who knows me knows, will say I like to really plan ahead. I can go with the flow. I can do improv, sure. But if I can plan something as important as like my life, <laughs> I'll do my best. So I started to kind of get really concerned. Um, near the end of Moore Park, like, oh my gosh, I gotta get it. I gotta put on my big boy pants and get a real job. You know, it's no more going to school. Um, and I, I felt very fortunate. I was selected through an interview process to get a trainer position there at the, uh, the show at Universal Studios run by a company uh, called Birds and Animals Unlimited and really great company, really great staff took great care of the animals. Great show to be a part of. Uh, but probably a month into it, I just was like, I didn't feel that spark. And I, I couldn't figure, I couldn't put my finger on it. I'm like, what, the, what is my problem? I've got this great job, you know, and a great future ahead of me with this great company. And I just couldn't put my finger on it. And it finally dawned on me. The parts of the job that I was most happy about were the moments I had either one of our trained dogs or trained animals to go for a walk through the park. And we do, we do something in front of the guests, you know, and that interaction and answering questions about how we did training and, and where the dog came from or something. I enjoyed that. And then it dawned on me that, the the part that I I loved all of more part, but the part I really just sunk my teeth into was those opportunities to be that connection between wildlife and the general public. You know, my passion drives me to learn more every day about biology and animals and species in general. And the average person that doesn't have the weird obsession of wildlife that I have, that's not there every day. So they ask the questions, and I love being able to give them those answers. I love seeing their face as they fall in love with whatever animal I have. 
you know, and even for those when it's like, oh, I don't like snakes, and they're going to lean far away. But as you start telling about adaptations and what this is for and why they do that, they start to lean in and like, okay, well, maybe I'll just give a little touch, you know. And that those are the greatest moments for me. And I realized that element of education, that element of connecting people to wildlife, was not a very large part of that position. So I stepped away after just one summer and started trying to hunt down where I could do that the most. And so I, I went to, and this is going to sound like a step away, but uh, at the time, this was the, um, sort of been uh, 93, that's okay. how old I am, it would have been 93 when Las Vegas was starting to make its big shift from being the adult playground to the family play- playground. Uh, Treasure Island was about to open, Luxor was about to open, MGM broke ground, um, so all these things were really starting to theme out. Well, the Tropicana already had a collection of birds and uh, tropical gardens. They were going to be the rainforest theme, and they wanted to get AZA accreditation. So they brought in eight of us who had zoo and, and exotic animal experience and understanding what it took to get accreditation and work with USDA. So they challenged us with, we want to have uh, marmosets, tamarins, and a wide variety of birds in our collection working with San Diego Zoo and LA Zoo and become accredited. And about three years into that process, we were doing quite well. Uh, the executives changed and essentially decided that they didn't want to do that anymore and started just chopping up our department. Oh. Uh, so uh, the unfortunate part was uh, that never came to fruition. The fortunate part was it was an amazing three years to work in a facility where you were surrounded by like-minded people and we had a pretty strong budget to do what we needed to do to mm-hmm. make things right. You know, and that was really nice. It was nice that when the USDA inspector would come in and go, hey, can you guys write a manual for everyone else to follow here in Las Vegas? You know, so we knew we were doing it right when we were getting that kind of kudos from, from that guy. And uh, yeah. But unfortunately, yeah, all, all good things must come to an end. So I bounced around to odd jobs to pay the bills and then eventually uh, landed a job at Guide Dogs for the Blind up in um, the Portland, Oregon campus. So they have two campuses, one in San Rafael and one in just outside of Portland. And uh, I landed there in Portland um, doing dog training and the finishing training for – matching the teams together and that was another three and a half years and the probably the strongest thing i got out of that was communication in the sense of you you can i can tell you you can come over to my house or i can go to your house or whatever we can meet up somewhere and i could say here hold the leash like this and you're going to stand right here so your legs line up this way with the shoulder of the dog and then you're going to pick up the harness and this is how it's going to go and you could watch me okay it's like this and i could watch you you remove that sight you remove the ability for me to show you where you need to stand, show you where your hand needs to be, show you all that. You have to find a new way to communicate when you take away that element of sight. And that's what I really learned, strength in my communication skills, working with people that were visually impaired. And learned a lot about the visually impaired community, too, which was really fun um, and fascinating. And, uh, you know, you, you go on a preconceived notion of what you think it would be like to be visually impaired, and then you you see that, oh, there's so much more to it, you know, yeah. and, and you know, the diversity of people and everything else is just wonderful. Uh, so as I was working through there, uh, I had always had the goal to be in San Diego eventually. And so I started applying and, uh, finally got in, uh, it was November, 2000. I started at the San Diego zoo as a part-time keeper. And, uh, one, one part of that story that if there's anyone listening, I try to in my, my answers on Instagram and people ask me, how'd you get your job? And, or I've, I've already applied to one place and I didn't even get an interview. One thing I have to say, especially in today's market, it's so competitive. You have to know that I didn't just send an application in and got a job. I started applying in early 2000, maybe even a little before then. And I sent in six applications, before, not all at once, but you know, application denied, application denied, application denied, application denied. Application denied. Yeah. And finally, 
on, I want to say it was the sixth one, I got the call wow. that, hey, we want to interview you. And then great interview, had a wonderful time, got the call back. Sorry, you were our number two pick. We absolutely Oh, you, number two. You are number two. Oh, you are number two. Yeah. Man, that's even worse. <laughs> I wouldn't be. <laughs> and, uh, and our number one selection, you know, has agreed to take the job. But uh, we were curious to know if you would be interested in a, uh, maybe another position that might come up later. We might have some part-time positions. Would that be available? And at, at the time, you know, jumping from a full-time benefited job uh, jumping ship, moving to a whole different state, and it, with just you know twenty hours maybe guaranteed and no no benefits, you're kind of like, do I do it? And yeah, I did because uh, talking to other people in the business, the mostly uh, large zoos, not always, but mostly large zoos will hire their part time employees into full time positions. They don't as often hire uh, a, a full time person in. To, from the outside. Um, and that makes sense because you know those people, you know your team, you know, and, and you, you know, so it makes sense to hire within. That's that's good practices. So I went ahead and took it, um, or not took it, I went ahead and waited, and then finally uh, that part-time position did open up, and I had to apply for that and did the phone interview and all the things, and finally got that job. And um, I was fortunate then about six months later, shortly after my probation was over, a full-time position opened up in the same department, and so I applied for that, interviewed for that, and was able to secure full-time shortly thereafter. But the point in, in adding that bit of, of the story to it all is that I know a lot of people now – uh, in our culture, not only are we instant gratification, um, because it's just the world we live in, but people tend to tell stories or, or have a belief or uh, something's out there that makes them think that I, I do these steps and I, I make the put in the application and I'm in. And that's not how it is, especially in our industry, because it is so uh, there's so many people who want that one job. And now having been at the San Diego Zoo for 18 plus years and having been on interview panels and seeing the amount of applications we get, I will tell you this, you can have over 100 very well qualified people applying for a part-time position with no benefits that ends at the end of summer, no guarantee to continued employment. So when I hear someone say, oh, but I put in an application, I did my volunteer work, and I, I just graduated from, from college, that's great. You're qualified on paper, but you've got your competition you got to think about now. And that's why I always encourage people, you've got to be patient and you've got to be persistent. You've got to keep getting experience. you got to keep applying you got to keep at it and you got to network nowadays too that's so important so what would you because i'm i'm kind of doing my own thing i'm not really affiliated with the zoo if 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 you're on the hiring panel rick what what would i have to say to you to impress you on the hiring panel like let's say i mean i have a college degree which i do i have all this animal experience what would set me apart mm -hmm. from other candidates in your eyes what would set what would say well set? i think if you're if you're going to do a straight line across the the the, the people i'd be interviewing um all have are, are well qualified on paper, meaning they have multiple years of animal experience. Um, it would, of course, would depend on the job, but let's say everyone is whatever the job was, they're all equally qualified with multiple years of animal experience already, bachelor's degree that's applicable, you know, life experiences that are applicable. Sit down in the interview and have that conversation. Uh, the most important thing I think anybody can do in, in, in any interview is don't worry about getting the answer right. Don't worry about what question you're being asked. Think about your life as your favorite movie. And so when someone asks you a question, think about a part of your favorite movie, your life. <laughs> uh, okay, so so I'm, I'm thinking Jurassic Park. Go ahead. <laughs> well, no, no, no. no, no. Don't answer with movie quotes. Don't, oh, do that. don't, don't, okay. don't answer with movie quotes. Okay, no, sorry. No. I'll shut up. <clears throat> I mean, although if you did drop Clever Girl, I would laugh. Um <laughs> 
<laughs> no, my point being is that, that I, I really think that the way to win anybody over in an interview is is being able to convey a good story that answers a question. So tell me about a time that you were most challenged about training an animal. Um, well, there was this parrot that didn't like me very much, but I had to switch him over to from his day perch to his night perch. And so I devised a way to... You know, that's kind of a eh story. But now if it's like, well, you know, I, there's this bird that I, I, I had to work with and I really had to devise a clever way to get his trust, you know, and go into that sort of a, a nice story about things, that'll answer the question well. Really draw me in so I know you and your experiences through the stories of your life that you're telling. And I say that because at the end of it all, the best way to, to, to look at an interview is not what you say, it's it's how people felt about you afterwards. And that's not to say go in stressed and like, oh, my God, do they think I'm weird? Do they think my hair is weird? Or did I answer that right? Or I stuttered. If you can come in in an interview and make sure that it was enjoyable for the people interviewing you, you've done a good job. And one of the easiest ways to do that is when they get to the part of, so, you have any questions for us? Don't say, mm, uh, what is it? What does it pay? Or when, when can I start if I start? Or can I have Sundays off if I start? You can ask those questions too, but don't open with that. Okay, hold on, hold on, Rick. I'm I'm just going to pretend. You you know what I would ask you? I would say, tell me about your craziest animal experience. Right. So that's would a great that way good? to open the question. Okay, that's good. a great Thank way to because okay, what what you're going to do when you're going to get me talking about myself. And so when people talk about themselves, they become more comfortable with the person they're talking to. So that means when you walk out of that interview. That person would be like, wow, you know, I can't put my finger on it, but I really like talking to that person. I could see them on my team. You see what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. So um, it's and, – and also the other part of that, which you get out of it then, if you get stories back from them about their life or how they got there, you can learn something like, oh, I totally want to work with this guy or, oh, maybe this isn't the right fit for me either. You know, There's that side of it too. People forget sometimes they're so wanting that job that they got to make sure they're a good fit for the for – the, the brand, the person they're working for, you know, the zoo, whatever. So ask questions that can help find out more. What was your craziest animal experience? Or I admire the, I really want to work here. I love this organization. How did you get to become a lead keeper? What's your path to getting here? You know, or how'd you become a supervisor? Because not only, again, you're going to even talk about themselves so they're comfortable, uh, but also you might learn something. Whoa, their path they, they did this six years of this first before coming here. I only have two. Maybe I need to look at that if I don't get this job. You know, So you can learn more about getting that job, too, or at least a similar job, by listening to those who already blazed that trail. Yeah, that's great. Thank you for going into that because I know a lot of a lot of young listeners listen to this who want to work in the zoological field, and a lot of them are stuck. I get emails, I would say, several, several, several a week from people saying, how did you yeah. get this start? What do I do? I haven't heard. Someone just emailed me and said I've sent out like 40 applications at the AZA site. Mm-hmm. haven't heard anything. And so thank you for going into that. I really appreciate it. Yeah, and I got to say, and I get a lot of those same messages too, and I can't say it enough. Do not be discouraged by not hearing back. Do not be discouraged if your first letter back is thanks but no. Uh, do not be discouraged if you get so frustrated not hearing back, you call HR and they're like, oh, no, we filled that position already. Um Again, you are one qualified person out of a field of 100, and some of these people have years of experience working in another facility already. It's not that you weren't qualified or good enough. It just means someone else was a little bit better for that position as far as they're concerned. doesn't mean next time you apply, they'll be like, oh, this person again? Next time you apply, you might be the right one for that position too. You've got to stay persistent. You have to be patient and just don't let – if it's your passion, if it's really what you want, you know, go for it and keep at it. 
it's tough because we're, we're promised in today's world instant gratification, and this, this career doesn't give it. No, neither does television. <laughs> so, <laughs> we picked two great fields. <laughs> right? We picked two great, you know. you know, promising careers. No, you have, you know, I'm just going to give you trouble. But, okay, so let's. No, it's true. It's true. It, it's so really mess on TV. Don't ever get into, t- I mean, it, it, whatever. We, we, that's a whole different podcast topic, which I can't wait to ask you about. But let's go back. Okay, so you, <laughs> so you are a part-time keeper at the San Diego Zoo first. Yeah. W- mm-hmm. I mean, which animals are you taking care of? Are you in random departments or the one that you wanted? Oh, I completely lucked out. Uh, often when people are hired on as a part-time keeper at the San Diego Zoo, most other keepers start to gather around the newbie and say, oh, what, what, are you gonna, what department do you want to transfer to? Where are you, where are you hoping to be? You know, I completely got uh, – I, I don't it was it wasn't luck. I shouldn't say. I was about to say I got lucky. Um, it was meant to be in the sense that my skill set and my passion – made me the best candidate for that position. And so even the part-time position I landed was in the department that is best suited for me, and that was the children's zoo. And the children's zoo of the San Diego Zoo is way more than just a petting paddock. There was about, I want to say, 30, 35 different species, birds, mammals, and reptiles that were all tractable or come out, uh, trained, uh, operant conditioned, to come out and do... We would do off-grounds presentations at children's hospitals and senior centers. Uh, we would do events with our local media and PR, either in a studio or on grounds. Uh, we would do fundraisers for the organization. And then, of course, we have a, a couple areas where people can you know, have a, a dinner party for their company or a lunch party for their company, and they, they can uh, have a schedule to come with animals. So, the, And then on days where the animals weren't scheduled or to do something, we would still take them out on a daily basis because it's very important to maintain the routine of coming out and being in front of the public. To, so it's not a big deal. It's, a, it's an everyday thing, so it's not special. Uh, for them, it's not special, especially for the people. Um, and and that was my position. My job was exactly what I just described to you was missing from all the other jobs. It was Whoa. getting out in the public with the animals, talking to them, and especially families and kids. I can I can live off of kid energy for forever. It's mm-hmm. the best. Uh-huh. Uh, I know people like, you know, whatever you do, never work with kids or animals. <laughs> it's my favorite thing. <laughs> you know, so... Uh, so yeah, I landed in the children's zoo, and it was the best fit ever. And so, like I said, the part the full time position came open shortly after my probation was over, and I, I I applied for it and got it, and I never looked back. I mean, that was it for me. I was ready to retire there. Absolutely, now, Rick, really, really and quick. Because, just for sorry to interrupt, but just for people, can you explain probation? You didn't get in trouble. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. So, <laughs> so there's, you know people. Yeah. I got it. Yeah. Just explain there, it for the listeners. Yeah. Sometimes, so like a lot of places that call you a probie or a newbie. Uh, usually, most most facilities, uh, you'll have anywhere three to six months, where it's part of the the work agreement or the contract or whatever it is you might work under that. You have to make it through probation without getting in trouble to then be considered eligible for hire for full time and, and anything else that comes with not screwing up. It gives the company basically or the, the zoo uh, an opportunity to get rid of you if you're a complete mess <laughs> without any ramifications for for uh, being fired. Yeah. So it just means you, you get through that, you know, uh, sort of that marker that says, OK, uh, you know, you're, you're a good employee and you've proven yourself and, and now you're eligible for applying to other things. Um, so yeah, so I got through that first six months and referred to as a probation period and, um, a position opened up full time in, in the children's zoo. Uh, I was able to get that position. And like I said, yeah, I was, I was made in the shade. I was so happy with it. And then, um, and I, I did a lot of work with our, our PR department internally, wasn't, but all sorts of departments. And, um, 
I loved all of it. It was great. I, I constantly, so it was like, like you said, 10,000 hours to get good at something. Well, it's like, I, I would volunteer constantly. Like to come up in the schedule, you know, go to, go to the news or channel eight's coming on grounds, or there's a, you know, a, a wedding reception that they want animals. I would sign up for all of them. I loved it. That was for me, that was the best part of the job. So, um, but 2000 to the end of 2008, uh, the organization announced that they would have a one go-to spokesperson for the opening of Elephant Odyssey, which was the at the time it was going to open in 2009. It was going to be the largest physical and size and most expensive exhibit that the San Diego Zoo had ever opened at one time. Most things, if they're huge, are open in phases. And the elephant team was very busy training their elephants to go into crates to move to the new exhibit from where they were. And they're also working with the architects and construction team to make sure that the place could not be destroyed by elephants that they're building. And so they knew they couldn't pull an elephant person they wanted, and they wanted to have someone that could go to our drive market so that that's considered a drive market is uh, people drive from that city to San Diego for their vacation. So places like Phoenix, Los Angeles, Bay Area. So the, they, they knew it was going to be busy going around talking to people about what we were doing and why. And the reason that was so important, Elephant Odyssey is structurally put together to be sort of the senior center for the North American herd of elephants. And by, by term of North American herd of elephants, from a AZA standard, from a zoological standard, we look at all elephants in North America as, as a collective herd that's managed. And we knew that most elephants came into the zoological world in the 60s and 70s here in North America, which meant most of them were kids at the time. And that whole herd was going to start aging. And so we needed a place that would be appropriate for them to offer things for geriatric care. And uh, that's what Elephant Odyssey was. And so I, uh, they, they needed someone to, to tell that story. And through a audition process, through a on-camera test, through a huge panel interview made up of very important people in the organization, uh, I was selected for that position. In, in, uh, that, so I, 2008? So 2008 was the interview. Yeah, December 2008 was the series of interviews, and it was crazy heading into the holidays all of that. And then I think it was right before the new year they told me I got the position. And so then I started there early January, stepping away from my keeper role for the first time um, into the PR side of it permanently. And that our organization does a lot of really cool things where they'll, they'll loan or, or let you through management agreement. If managers agree, you can go to another department to, for lack of a better term, test drive what it's like to do that. So the organization allows you to go into other roles with a promise that your role, your original position will be waiting for you when that part is over with. So um, I went in under the idea that I would be coming back as a keeper. Uh, so I was like, okay, as long as so I'm not stepping away from the job I love into the unknown, I'm stepping into the unknown knowing I get to come back to my, the job I love. So I'm good. I can do this. So I was able to uh, be in that role through from January through about August, September of 2009, and then went back into keeper work. But there was so much interest in Elephant Odyssey that PR requested I stay on a couple of days a week to help them with uh, with interviews with with uh, a lot of the media coming on grounds to tour it. So I kind of balanced three days as a keeper, two days in the public relations department. And then in 2010, we relaunched Polar Bear Plunge, and they wanted one go-to spokesperson for that. And they asked me if I'd do that. So I went back full-time to the PR stuff in January 2010. And about halfway through that campaign, they said, would you like to stay on full-time as the spokesperson for the organization? So I've officially been full-time spokesperson since 2010 uh, for San Diego Zoo and San Diego Zoo uh, Safari Park. Wow. Congratulations. So that's that's the origin story. Congratulations, man. That, <laughs> Thanks. It's been a heck of a ride. Yeah, I was going to say. Now, let's just go back really quick. Because didn't the San Diego Zoo have Joan Embury like way back in the day? 
wasn't she the spokesperson? Yes, she she was. So she really broke ground for people like you and me when it comes to being on TV talk shows. She, You go back, and she really was the first one that was a zoo person bringing zoo animals into an environment that allowed us to speak directly to people in their living room. And that had never been done before. She did that with Johnny Carson in the 60s. <laughs> yeah. They were a great team. Johnny loved her. And, you know, when you got Johnny's blessing, uh, I'm, I'm dating myself, too. A lot of people, you know, younger people <laughs> listen to men who Johnny Carson is. But, um, you know, before Jimmy Fallon and before Jay Leno. Wait, Jay Leno who? <laughs> I have people tell me yeah, that, right, Rick. Exactly. No, they're yeah. like, who's Jay Leno? Like, they're like, who? Like, I'm like, and they're just, yeah. Anyway, go ahead. Yeah. Then there was Johnny Carson. Oh. Crushing, crushing. She broke ground on that, and it was a good long run that she had with Johnny Carson, which also opened the door for other programs too. And uh, so she is still working with us. She does. She's a. With a she has her own conservation organization here in San Diego. She has her own ranch with her own collection of animals on it. Um, I know some of the staff that work for her, and so she still comes out twice a year uh, to the zoo to uh, help us with our fundraisers. Um, and I've, I, I've never worked, worked with her, but I've met her several times, wonderful person. And, you know, a lot of times like, Oh, you know, so you're the new Joan Embry, huh? And I'm like, no, 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 no. I'm not the new Joan Embry. There's no way I could pretend to be the new Joan Embry. I could not fill her boots. Uh, she was groundbreaking, not only for women, but also just for our type of work that we do. Uh, I, at the best I'm standing on her shoulders and just hope that I'm carrying the torch forward with, you know, with that in mind. Back in the day, am I not correct that zookeeping was more of a male-dominated field? Absolutely. Back in the day, yes. so she's not only is she a female, but she's on TV. She's a key. I mean, that actually, she really did break the ground for that. Absolutely, absolutely. No, and to your point, you know, this type of work back when she was really getting started was a man's job, you know, quote unquote. Um, it, it was considered a rough tumble cowboy, urban cowboy kind of situation. And you look back at keeping at that time, it was more of a, a ranch-type feel. You look at today where we're taking in animal welfare, we're taking in psychological, we're taking in so much more on the care side. It's a very different world. And, and as you probably know, too, the animal care world now is, is by far a majority of women. And uh, so, yeah, it's a very different world. But, yeah, for her, uh, when, when she was doing what she was doing, definitely, definitely groundbreaking on many levels. Yeah, that's awesome. So I have a question. Did you ever see yourself on TV? I think growing up, so... My my TV role models uh, really were very limited. Uh, I had reruns of Neutral Omaha. Uh, we had, growing up, we had uh, a Nat Geo special, not a Nat Geo channel, but a Nat Geo special that would happen every now and then on our PBS station or something. Uh, we have Nova every now and then. And I, growing up, I mean, I, I obsessed. If there was an animal documentary of any sort on, I was, like, glued to the TV. There were, again, no internet, so no YouTube, no watching all these great videos you have at your click of a button nowadays. Um, and so I, I don't know if I ever, in that moment of childhood, pictured myself as being on TV so much as I looked at it going, I could do that. You know, I could work with animals. I want to do that. And then um, Jack Hanna's career started blossoming, and he had his, his show uh, on, on uh, Saturday mornings, when I was a little bit older and I saw that, I was like, oh, that'd be fun to do. But it wasn't so much a desire to do the work on TV so much as do the work with animals. I never really had that initial thought that, you know, TV is another outlet. And and as I was coming up in the in the children's zoo and I started getting exposed, exposed to doing local PR, so going on TV here locally in San Diego, I started to realize that it, it offered up the opportunity to reach a larger audience, and it wasn't so much the, the idea of being on TV or being on radio. It was like, 
I love teaching people about wildlife. Love, love, love reconnecting people with with nature. Uh, I think that's an element that's missing a lot, honestly, in our in our modern world, and we don't realize that sometimes. And that's fine. I don't think it's. I'm, I'm not poo pooing our modern world at all. I just think sometimes we get going so much that we forget to look up at the trees and, and check out the birds or whatever. And so when I started getting the opportunities to do radio and television um, as a spokesperson for wildlife. I really saw that as an extension of my passion of, of reaching more people and the idea of um, getting on a national show. I was like, man, wouldn't that be something to be able to talk to that many more people about? And then my first national show was uh, about climate change. But the cool thing was I only had one Arctic animal with me. The rest of them were all tropical because I was trying to bridge that concept that when we talk about climate change, it's not just polar bears and Arctic foxes. Yes, they're the two. But some of these, you know, beautiful tropical animals you think of will also perish because they're losing habitat. And that's part of the bigger picture of how it's all connected. And so um, the idea that I could have a larger audience, upwards of over a million, I was like, heck, yeah. So um, I got bit by the bug, definitely, because it just it's like, yeah, let's do that again. Let's do that more. And then, you know, you get you get social media going in the end of the picture there in, in 2000. Well, for me, it started with the pickup 2011, I think. Um, I was doing Twitter earlier than that. Okay. Really started to pick up for social media. And I would start getting feedback after being on TV um, on social media. People saw it. They were impacted. They liked it. They asked more questions. Oh, I saw you on TV with that preemptive porcupine. Where's it from? What was her name? What do they eat? Yes. More people asking questions about animals, you know. And so I started really trying to leverage over the last few years social media as another position, another place, mm-hmm. along with national television. Because kind of as you alluded to, TV can be a tricky fish. Um, <laughs> it's a big but, tricky fish. <laughs> right. It is. It is. And, and, but when it comes to social media, you kind of have the opportunity to go, I can speak out whenever I want. I can speak on this topic whenever I want. I don't have to wait for a call. And, and it is work to get a larger audience on social media. You definitely work at it. But... Again, for me, it's it's part of my passion, and I always now I, I feel guilty if I can't respond to comments because I'm busy doing something else. You know, because I want to I want to I want that engagement with people. I want to tell them about rhinos and zebras and whatever else. Yeah, and you have a great social media presence. If you're not following at Zookeeper Rick, please do on oh. Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. I, I I love it. I love your posts. So let's go back. What is your first? Yeah. What is your first national show? What year and what show? It was February 2010. I remember it well. I feel like when your first national appearance, you always remember that first date, February. That's so interesting. February 2010. Okay. Yeah. Well, it, I, it was so many things. Um, not only my first national appearance. Um, so at that stage, I had not been offered yet to be full. It was after. It was actually after that trip to New York that I was offered the full-time position. I think that was kind of a proving ground for the executives. Um, so... Uh, San Diego Zoo as an organization hadn't been on national TV since Jones stepped away from doing national TV. And I think it was about 2001 or two, um, maybe even before then. And uh, there was no national presence in, in the media, just local presence in the newspaper articles or whatever. So there's a lot of pressure to represent the organization for the first time on the national stage. Um, I was in charge of uh, getting our animals out there um, safely, and uh, you know, I'd never, never traveled. I'd gone to Phoenix and LA and New York overnight trips or whatever, but never across the country, never multiple nights. I'd never, I'd been in New York only one time before in my entire life. Wow! Uh, so there was a lot going on, and um, you know, we didn't, we didn't strategically plan it well. Anybody planning on doing live TV first thing in the morning, East Coast time, if you're from the West Coast, go there a day early and adjust the time change. We didn't do that. <laughs> 
We flew in uh, the day before. You land, it's, you know, it's the evening. By the time you get there and get yourself settled, get your, we had enclosures we had to build in the hotel room for the animals to, to be with us. And, uh, you know, we didn't go to bed till maybe 11.30. And then um, I had, what did I have? I had a, a prince and a porcupine and two tortoises with me in my room. And uh, tortoises were in these giant tubs. And the porcupine was in this big enclosure that we, we had sent out the panels early and we built it there in the hotel room. And so... In the middle, you know, it was I finally go to sleep maybe about eleven thirty, um, probably one o'clock. I'm woken up to her chewing on her her enrichment. I put some enrichment in there. She's wide awake because she's a porcupine at nighttime. That's what they do. So she wakes me up with that, and then she finally settles a couple hours later. And then all of a sudden, I start hearing this this like thunk, thunk. I'm like, what the heck is that noise? And I turn on the lights and look, and it's a tortoise going along the edge of the tub, scraping its shell on the edge of the tub, and then hit the corner and going thunk. Yeah. Turning, going yep. along the edge. <laughs> thunk. So I maybe had not only jet lag, but maybe two hours of sleep. Because, of course, then you have to get up at 4 30, get everything packed and ready to go to the studio for a 7 o'clock appearance or whatever. Show? It was. You have to show. Which show? Uh, it, was, it doesn't even exist anymore. CBS Early Show. Oh, the CBS so Early CBS Show. CBS does have its morning show. Okay. Uh, this is a CBS Early Show. Uh, it was, the studios were right there on 5th near Central Park. And um, uh, I remember going in there and just it was ridiculous ridiculously tight space i had no idea how small studios were in new york and uh ridiculously small space and i had been watching i binge watched the show for weeks ahead of time because i'm that person like i said earlier i'm a planner so if i'm ever going to do an appearance or have an interview i like to do my homework first to see what's this person's angle how does the show run what's the feel what's the cadence how do i fit into that you know and it just makes for for a better appearance if you can be prepared and so i had watched the show so now i knew the set i knew the players and, you know, there's so much going into it, making sure the animals are stationed in the right places and the people who are helping you are in the right places and you know what your order is and how you're going to present and how much time do I have when we think <laughs> you have five minutes, but it might be four. So you do all this stuff and you're really focused. And then we, they go to – they're doing weather. I get up on where I'm supposed to be. They're doing weather and then they go to commercial. And that was the first moment, the entire probably three or four days leading up to that moment that I had nothing to think about other than what I was going to say. Whereas before it was all the logistics of the moving of animals and just that and the other. And I remember I, I literally had I'm a, an oh shoot moment, but it wasn't shoot that I said in my head. And I could, I could feel I had this moment where I was like, this is it. The entire, all the important people of the organization are watching this. There are millions of viewers watching this. This is my first time on national TV ever. And I could feel the blood you know, just start to drain from my face. You know, you get the dry mouth, you get the cold hands, your heart rate's going through the roof. And I was able to talk myself out of it. Thankfully, I was like, you know what? You're here talking about some of the things you love. You're here talking to somebody about your animals or the rest. It's no different than doing your local network TV, no different than doing anything else you do. And I was able to get my breath back. And I was able to kind of reorient myself that, no, I'm not scared. I'm just having a, I'm very excited for this opportunity. And it was great. We had a great interview. It went wonderful. Everything went well. Um, you know, and I walked out of there going, it, it was so surreal. It was, it, it wasn't even, it wasn't in this elation even because of course now you have to pack up the animals, to get out of the studio and it's all the safety stuff you think about and taking care of the animals and the logistics. And then, you know, you're finally on the, on the back on your way to the, the hotel and it's kind of like, wow, that happened. What did I even say? <laughs> you know, because that happened so out yeah. of your head for that first time. Yeah. That happens every single time. I mean, I don't, yeah, you don't even, yeah, you just, you, you get done and it's just like, Wow, all the time, all the permitting, all the animal transitions, working with the handlers, the producers, the tea, you know, I, it, yeah. like all this stuff. And then and then it just happens so quick. And then it's like you're in, back in the hotel and you're like, okay, wow. 
like I hope it looked good. <laughs> you go back and look at the appearance. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> did I do anything? Did I do anything stupid? <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, and it's it's great. You know, a lot of people look at that and go, "Wow, it seems like a lot of work for for three to five minutes of TV, or you know, seven if you're lucky." But again, I I view it or I see it as this is an opportunity that I might be able to inspire someone to want to learn more or think about maybe their actions and how that affects wildlife. Or maybe there's that kid who doesn't even know you could do this sort of thing. And it's like, Whoa, what's that about? You know I mean? The, and then I get that feedback and that's what keeps me going is that it is a lot of work going into it, but I do think there's value in being able to go beyond just people coming to the zoo to see us talk or present but us actually end up either on nowadays on the phone, on a computer, in their living room, whatever it may be, on their favorite show, to have these conversations, to give this kind of exposure to this wildlife that is in need of our assistance. Yeah. Okay. So you do CBS this morning, which is since canceled. I mean, it's not canceled. It's it's like a whole new program, the whole new format of the show. What is your next national appearance? Well, yeah, they they yeah they they revamped. I think it. a couple years later they changed formatting and changed their crew, and yeah, things changed around. Um, I went back to that show, was it before or after? I guess it was before they changed formatting. So I think we went back the following year or maybe that fall. I don't remember now for sure. But we went back to that show again, and then from there we started bouncing around. We did uh, several appearances on today's show. Uh, gosh, there's a lot of shows that were shows I, that are syndicate shows, like morning breakfast shows or mm-hmm. syndicate shows. So there was one called Better TV we did for a long time. Um, did home and family here in LA. I've done access Hollywood here in LA. Um, my very first time working with, uh, uh, live with Kelly. That was, gosh, was that 2012 or 13? I have to so tell- it all gets fuzzy after that I, very first 2010. I have to tell you what, and you're on my home turf, the today show. I hope you enjoyed that. I know you've been on there several times, but, uh, what a great, uh, yeah. Well, did, did you like the today show? I know you've done several appearances there. How was your experience there? Well, sure. You know, so my very first time was, was with your sidekicks, Kathy and, and, and Hoda. And, <laughs> my two buddies. <laughs> I mean, well, yeah. And the thing is, you know how much fun they like to have, right? Mm-hmm. And so they're they're all about having a good time, and I get that. You know, and that's that's their that's their show, and that's how they want to run it. You know, but then I have on the other side, it's like, okay, but I do have an objective to educate and bring forward, you know, solid information, not just you know goofy animal stuff. So there's that that balance you have to strike, which I'm sure you know. You know, mm-hmm. it, it is a delicate dance to to be able to have that fun, goofy element without feeling that it's at the expense of the animal, and being able to also bring something of value to the audience, other than just oh, it's a cute little animal. You know, so it's mm-hmm. that that constant balance. But no, I I love working with them. Uh, they're they're great. I'm sure as you know. Uh, you know, I I haven't been back there. So I started when I when I transitioned to doing shows with Live with Kelly, and again I was 12 or 13. I I think. I don't think I'm only back to the Today Show once since then. So I haven't been back on the Today Show for quite a while. Yeah, but most been... of the stuff we do now is uh... yeah, live with Kelly, which is oh, I was just gonna say just because it's ABC and NBC and they're so yeah, particular you... and right, you got all the networks doing their thing and who can do what and all that, and that's yeah. fine. I get that, you know. And and again, even if like I got a call tomorrow and said you can't do any more national shows, I'd be fine with that because now there's social media, so I can still reach the large audience through other avenues. I love doing the shows. I love the, the people I get to meet and the things I get to experience. Absolutely. But if there was no social media, then I would be a little more distraught <laughs> not being able to reach the audience. But now it's like, okay, 
you know, this this can be managed no matter what. But I, I still very much enjoy going back to New York, and uh, we've got a wonderful relationship with Kelly and, and her producers, and yeah. you know, now Ryan's on there, so it's Kelly and Ryan. Hold and, on. Uh, yeah, we have to go back, Rick, because I was trying to get on that show for years. <laughs> oh, I know. No, I was trying to get on the show for years, but I am. I mean, now I'm now I haven't pitched for years because now I'm so stamped with NBC. It's like tattooed. Right. Like, I have Today Show tattooed like on my face. Uh, so I'll probably never get on just because they're ABC. So what is that experience like being on live with Kelly? She seems like such a fun person. She really is. And I, I, I get so upset when people are like, oh, she's this, that, or the other, and drama, whatever. I adore her. She, What you see on TV is who you get. And having worked with uh, so many TV personalities and worked with so many different shows, I can tell you that she is one of the few that truly loves animals to the point where like, she sticks around after the show to ask questions and talk about this or talk about that or a commercial break. She's like, oh, well, what about this one? Bring that one back out because I had to go way too early. I want to see more on this and tell me more about that. She's absolutely wonderful. And, and that's what makes it much more fun to do her show than than maybe another show because there's that genuine desire on her part to learn more. And that strikes a chord with me, of course. Um, so that's always been a treat. That's always been one of the great things about, about visiting with her. She truly is genuinely interested. And, and um, it's fun, too, because now she'll she'll send me a, a picture through uh, direct message on Instagram. You know, I, I'm over here with my family. We saw this frog. We thought you'd like it. You know, oh. so it's, it's deeper than just being on the show when when, they, when she's thoughtful enough to send me a picture of a frog, you know. Yeah. So uh, that I, is so I enjoy cool. that. And I've seen yeah. For those of you who have not seen Rick with Kelly, he's done numerous segments with her. You can just go on YouTube. And I she is genuinely like she's not. I've seen some shows. I won't even say the name. I just saw a, a clip of one of these talk shows. I will not say her name, but she just, you could tell she was pretending to be so scared of something and just like yeah. freak out for like, for an the audience reaction. laugh. Very bit. And, and by the yeah. way, this was not someone on the uh, um, Today Show. It was another national, uh, national syndicated show, but I thought it just was so right, fake right. and ingenuine. It was just like, you know, but Kelly seems yeah, like she's know, really into it. Yeah, she she really is, and and I understand a lot of shows they try too hard, you know, because the production team is in their ear going, "Oh, make sure great TV if you're scared of it or or whatever." Or get a good, good laugh, you know, and everyone's trying to make a good show, and that that was part of the first thing. One of one of my first times appearing on live with Kelly, we were call our call time was two hours before the show had been started, and uh, I had never been on the show before. We have certain standards and protocols we have to follow, uh, and rightfully so, for safety of ourselves and the others and animals. And thinking of animal welfare is always a priority for us too. And and, and so they'll ask for the moon and more, um, and I'm like, no, no, no. This is what we can deliver, and this is how I can work within my guidelines. And if you don't want that, then I have to walk away. And so I spent an hour, um, an exhausting hour back and forth battle with her producer and i will say her name her name is marianne and i adore her now but that first meeting we had because they have a they have a top morning show they have to produce they don't want garbage and so she was just pushing 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 how what can we do with this what can we do with that how about this how about that and i'm like no i can't do that with this one but i can do this with that one you know and trying to steer the the protocols and then gelman the executive producer comes down and i have the same conversation with him and by the end of that almost two hours of back and forth with the producers i went back to my team and i was like you know what we're gonna go do our thing and if they don't like it we ain't ever coming back and i'm okay with that because <laughs> i was just so frustrated with this this constant pushing by the producers and but in hindsight now i look at that and go well that's how they get such good shows is they they need to push to get as much as they can out of their people and then that ends up being a number one rated show and now i get it um, and so we went out there and honestly, I had this whole, I wasn't even nervous. I should have been because it's the number one morning show and all this stuff. And it's Kelly and blah, blah, blah. But I was just so frustrated with the producers and, and this back and forth. I had this attitude about me. I was like, you know what? I'm just going to go out. I'm going to do me. 
and then we're out of here and I'm mm-hmm. fine because you know what this is clearly not going to work and it you look at it now the segment ran long they loved it so much they kept us they just kept rolling with it it's what's probably the longest segment I've ever had on live with Kelly wow. afterwards I got a big old handshake from the executive producer Kelly comes up to me with a big hug sorry, and I've never met her before for life of me and a lot of times you don't meet the talent you work with until you're on stage with them. you know you don't there's no meet and greet beforehand it's like first time you ever meet the person you're talking to and supposed to have charisma with is on live TV oh yeah <laughs> and yeah, and it was great. Afterwards, you know, this is exactly what we wanted. Thank you so much. It's great. When can you come back? And that just started from there. We've been going back sometimes twice a year, sometimes once a year. And it's like going back to visit friends now. It's so wonderful going back there. Mm-hmm. We had an issue, and this was not with the uh, Today Show. It was, it was with another syndicated show where I think a lot of these producers, they're, they're obviously not animal people, and they look at these animals as props. So it's like... Oh, certainly. Yeah, yeah. so you know, they, they have these expectations and this and that, and so it is very hard... Sometimes where it's just like, and you're trying to talk to them, like, you know, these are the animals and you're in the same position I am a lot. It's like, you know, our number one concern is the animals, their well-being, if they're, you know, happy, if they're, you know, content, we don't want to make them do anything they don't want to do. So I totally understand that. Yeah. And to your point, you know, I think we, we in the animal world sometimes forget the perspective of others who don't work with animals on a day. I mean, so many people don't even have pets, you know? So as far as they're concerned, they're running a show. They, things come on and off stage when they tell it to and lights go on when they're supposed to. So why can't the animal come do that when I say it needs to, you know, mm-hmm. they, they, and I don't, I agree with you. A lot of people kind of think of them as props and that's where I take the role of like, okay, let me talk to you for a second about the perspective this animal has in the world right now, you know, and let me tell you about how this, this animal works and negotiates in new spaces. And let me tell you how that boom mic over there is going to affect its perception or how that can't crane camera is going to affect its perception or how that sparkling, you know, laser light over there for commercial breaks, you know, whatever. And so it's up to me then to try and shift that perspective. And sometimes they're like, Oh wow, I had no idea. Other times like, okay, whatever, just bring the animal over here, you know? And, Mm -hmm. and it's, you can't fault someone for being who they are, but, but we can sure and try and, and try and educate them. But yeah, yeah, you're right. I've run into that too, where they kind of have this, it's a prop perspective and it's up to us to start shifting that mentality. Did you ever meet a celebrity or a host that was just a nightmare to work with? I have one. I'll tell you if you tell me yours. Um, <laughs> well, you know, I mean, for me, it's, I, I can, I can honestly say no, no real nightmares. Um, but I just don't like it when, if you're presenting and they just have no affect. Like they're just like, uh, they like just interested. And, and that has happened on a couple times where it's the, I'm on a show and the person genuinely is like, eh, animals. <laughs> because I'm like, that's like, how is that even a thing? Like, I'll give you, I'll, okay, I get it if you think it's a prop because you're in TV and things are props. I get that. But if it's, a, it's not even a prop, it's just like, meh, animals. I'm like, what? This is a koala. I don't say the show, but <laughs> yeah, right? I won't say the show or the person, but okay. yes, there was a person who I was on TV with who, even during commercial break, they're like, I don't even know why I'm here. I don't even like animals. And I was like, what? Was it, was this hold on, thing? Rick, was it, was it a celebrity or someone I would know? If I said the name, people would know it, yes, but I'm not going to. Okay, it's not okay. No, I understand. I yeah. understand. Oh, wow. That's so, um, so yeah, I've, I've had the gamut, you know, you have people like Kelly who can't get enough of the animals and want to learn more on commercial break and others who are like, I, I don't want to be here right now. So, you know, um, yeah, but, but I wouldn't say, but I mean, for me, that's a nightmare. Someone who's not interested in, in animals, that's a nightmare for me, but not nightmare in the sense of they're over the top or eccentric or horrible, you know, I mean, you know, you, you, I've had the, so much cause you're on these shows where there's a lot of celebrities. And so, um, 
you know, you, you cross paths with these, these people that, that are like, you know, your idols or people you've only seen on TV or their big names. And I think, uh, you know, probably for me, one of the, the, the best ones I was on, uh, watch what happens live Andy Cohen's show. And, uh, the, uh, other guests were, um, Cindy Lauper and Rod Stewart. Oh, wow. Wow. And Cindy Lauper. I, I wanted to just take her home with me. Uh, just, she was just so wonderful. And for me growing up, when I grew up, you know, when she was really hot in her pop, you know, music era, a lot of young listeners probably don't know who she is, but yeah, she's girls just want to have fun. I'll um, just, I'll insert and, that. I can't afford the right. All the stuff, all that sugar pop. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All that sugar pop music, man. And, and, and to meet her and she was genuinely just so sweet and awesome. So really you run the full spectrum okay, of people that's who are either disinterested in animals or just so, so cool. I was just on a TV show last year with Cindy Lauper and I was intimidated. We were right next to each other. It was probably from me to the computer and I was intimidated to talk to her because I didn't know her stance on zoo or right. um, or animals and so we were on the we were on the same talk show we were on uh, megan kelly today and i remember seeing her and i was like mm. i mean first of all she's really tiny in person you know what i mean she so, is she's like, so tiny yeah she, but her hair's like you know what i mean cindy Lauper, oh, and she's I know. Always what color pink. was it what color was it blonde Okay. Or, or bleach blonde. No, no, the colors just blonde. Yeah, I, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it was she just blonde. She had like blues and purples in it. <laughs> oh, maybe there was purple. Okay, yeah, yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. Maybe there was purple. But I remember thinking, I just was like. I didn't know if she would be ex- – I, I, I didn't know, but it's good to hear that she was super nice to you. I mean I don't even think she actually knew the animals. I mean she was on before us and the animals were in a green room. So right, she right. probably thought I was just – mm. you know, she probably thought I was like one of the NBC stage hands. You know what I mean? Like next to the coffee. Uh, yeah, your production. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah, which I would probably just like it with my little tie. But uh, that's good to know that she was nice. I didn't know that – I didn't know her stance on Zeus. Oh, she's wonderful. Really? Yeah, she's wonderful. She's she's a real sweet lady, and um, uh, she came out, and we had a, a we we're doing a photos afterwards, and uh-huh. I had a, um, a cockatoo with me, and she just thought it was great that her blonde hair with the pink and purple stripe or color in it was also similar to the crested, uh, you know, the, there was a Moluccan, so it had that, that crest color, that that salmon color in there, and so that was fun. But yeah, no, she's good people. That's awesome, man. That's crazy. Watch what happens live. Yeah, very interesting. Very cool, man. Yep. You, you've had yeah, and yeah. it's. It's a, it's a mixed bag of shows we get to go on, and, and, it's, and it's fun. You start to build relationships with people on the team, the production team, as you know, too. And, you know, show, I'm sure you've got some great relationships there. And, and Andy Cohen, as crazy and wacky as he is on, on the show, uh, he's always good about coming up to us before the show, checking in. Everything's good. You guys are good. Oh, I'm so happy you're here, you know, and mm-hmm. talking it up after the show, too. So he's another good one. I enjoy mm-hmm. um, you know, being with, being on his show just because of the way he treats his, his, his staff and his, his guests. Yeah, and I've been in that studio. It's so tiny, too, man. <laughs> It's, yeah, yeah, it's it like is. a tiny. It is. Yeah, did you have did you have any close call moments on television with like one particular animal, like an incident that you were like, "Oh my god, how is this going to go?" Yeah, actually, um, thankfully that doesn't happen very often. You know, we're I'm again going back to being a planner. I try to like in my head think of every possible scenario that could happen with every animal, and so I I try really hard to stay ahead of the animals by a couple beats, you know, to try and, okay, it's going to do this. I'm going to go here and prevent that. But I think the, the, the one close call that I did not know how it was going to end and what was going to happen. Um, so the live with Kelly studio is a very long, narrow studio left to right. So it's a very shallow depth on the stage till you get to the audience. And then to make for a bigger audience, there's a second layer. There's mm-hmm. a second tier um, of audience in seats. So they're up a sec- you know, two stories up, and there's a railing there. 
weekend, I had free flown birds. It's a great free flight studio. It's probably one of the best ones for free flight because it's so dang long. You, you send your one trainer down to the far end, and holy cow, it's a beautiful flight. And uh, we had flown once before a bald eagle in there, and I think wow. one other. I think it was a crow we had fly through, a raven or something. And so I had a, a Harris's hawk with me, and um, you know we had done the practice flight before the audience comes in. And everything was fine. Bird's solid as always. No big deal. No moving booms. Don't do anything different. Once you know, once it's on the glove, then you can move cameras. And uh, he flew to me, or she flew to me, perfectly well. And went to go send her back. And instead of going straight back to the trainer, uh, about halfway, maybe even a third before half, sharp right hook up into the second story uh, seats and landed on the railing. <laughs> And the way the the way the studio is set up, those seats are right there. Like you can reach out and touch the railing. Oh! So in, in my head, I'm like, please don't reach out and hold, try to hold her. Please don't reach out and hold her, because I knew if the trainer just gave the call one more time, she'd probably dive right back down. At least that's what I was hoping. But I could also see because she was just on my glove. Someone thinks, oh, I'll, I'll be helpful, and I'll I'll get her for you. You know, without a glove. And, and I'll be honest with you, of all the birds to have that happen, she'd probably be one of the best because she was really, really soft-footed, mm-hmm. um, not the type to really bear down. But then again, you've got a, a stranger reaching for her. You don't know for sure. Um, and so in my head, I'm running through all the scenarios. I'm keeping eyes on my trainer who, who knows he's got to get her, try and get her down. And Michael, I was on Kelly, and my, when Michael was on with Kelly, he's like, so what, what do we do now? And I'm like, oh, don't worry about it. This is part of our meet and greet program. She's just saying hi to everybody up there. <laughs> See, that's I'm, really so I'm good. Trying the, <laughs> I'm trying to draw the cameras back to us. I'm like, well, I can get the next animal out because my goal is I don't need the whole show. If I have the whole show focused on a bird that's up on a railing, um, I lose the opportunity to teach about the next animal. I lose the opportunity to make it a teachable moment, and it becomes just this fascinating, oh, what's the bird going to do? And so I don't even remember what the second animal was, or the next animal was after her. But as I was going to uh, get it to start, she then flew right down to the trainer. And it all ended well. But in that moment, you know, you, you don't know what you're going to get. So that would probably be my, my close call story for, you know, a wide variety. She could have just stayed up there. Who knows? <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. That's crazy. I, uh, yeah. You're so lucky someone didn't reach out. I mean, because, you know, yeah, the general yeah. public would have been like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and that you. was, and, and that was, you know, I, I uh, and, and the humor side of it to Michael was, you know, it's oh, it's our meet and greet program, but then I did also, you know, turn and say, hey, please let's not reach up, you know, don't reach out for her, she'll come down to, to my trainer in just a moment, just everyone stay quiet, but let's go on to the next animal, you know. So I try to try to give that, you know, let's be quiet, let her refocus, and she did, she was great, and then moved on to the show and it went fine. I don't think I've had any close calls, but in my early days on the Today Show in 2013, we worked with a group from northern New York, whatever, they came down and they had never done like like a national show before. And, you know, we went through all mm. the prep. And as you know, with these shows, they're live. They're, they're not rehearsed. Like what? I mean, there's no, I mean, it's like a straight shot. You better, you know, right. aim. And I remember we were on for the next animal and we were, you know, bringing out these beautiful blue and gold macaws. And as I'm saying, oh, and check out these beautiful birds, I look over and the handler is so transfixed by the monitors. She's just staring looking oh, no. at the monitors and the blue and gold macaws are still in their crates. So I see you just said that. So I anyway run over. I was working with Hoda Copy and Dean Kane, you know, Superman. And I'm mm-hmm. like, oh, and then so I run to the other side of the set and I grab a Mata Mata turtle. Thank God that was right there. And then, you know, continued mm-hmm. as if it was planned like that. But I remember in that in that five seconds of time, I'm just like, 
I mean, I just, oh, I'm so I'm freaking out right now thinking about it. that was. Oh well, yeah, yeah, and and <laughs> and, and to the, to those that are listening, it's not so much that, that you freak out too that that it didn't go as planned or or whatever, but it's you also in your head you have the pressure of time. You know, you you have just a few minutes with with your animals on 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 TV. You just have a few minutes to get your message out. And if you, those minutes are lost to there not being an opportunity to have your animal on stage with you, yes. that's stressful. Oh you know, so your transitions, your transitions have to be smooth. Otherwise, you don't get through everybody or you don't get the opportunity to have more airtime. If you lose time to transitions and not being actually on camera with the animal, then, yeah. So I can imagine the stress you must have felt looking over seeing the next animal was not ready. But you know what, though? <laughs> looking back, you would never know. And it, right, and it happened right. so seamless, but in that moment, it seemed like it took like a minute. Of Five just hours, like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. We've never worked with that team again. It was yeah. awful. Anyway, so, yeah, but you yeah. learn something new every day. Okay, that's great. That's great. Um, yeah. Oh, man. I, and I, we're way past over an hour. Rick, thank you so much uh, just for taking yeah. the time to do this. I had such a good time talking to you. Do you have any last-minute advice for anybody wanting to pursue a similar career path? Um. Well, I think probably the first step before you in this is kind of, I think for any career path, you're gonna, if you're going to pursue it, make sure you're passionate about it. Make sure you check yourself first that this is really what you're about. If you say yes to that, like, yes, this, this is my passion. This is what I'm about. And then you get into it and you're like, hmm, maybe not, maybe something else. Be honest with yourself. Be true to yourself. You're not doing yourself or anybody else any favors if you're trying to be something that you're not. And and I say that coming from the animal side of stuff because it this is a career path that's not going to pay you well. This is a career path that you're going to work in the rain. You're going to work in the snow. You're working on Christmas. Um, you know, you're working on whatever day is important to you. Um, and you can say right now, as, as someone who might be young and excited about the job, I don't care, I don't care. But I've seen people get burnt out on it. I've seen people who, who come to the realization, no, I'd, I'd rather do a Monday through Friday, eight to five, so I can have my weekends or, or whatever. And that's absolutely fine. Again, I, I honor people who are honest with themselves and know themselves well enough to do that. But the reason I think it's important you know yourself and you know this is your passion because it's a lot of work. It's a lot of hard work to break into the field and the, you need a lot of determination. It is not easy to get in. And, uh, and it's, it's, a, it's a challenging job to have. And again, going back to the financial side of it, a lot of organizations now require a minimum of a bachelor's degree. And a four-year college can be expensive. And if you have student debt already coming out of college and you're going into a career path that is notorious for not paying very well, you have to also be honest with yourself, can you live like that? Can you live on that kind of budget and still find joy and happiness in your day that 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 lower budget's okay with you. And some people, it's a yes, you know, this guy, <laughs> um, but other, other people not. And I think if you can have that honest conversation with yourself, then my piece of advice for you is set your eyes on it and don't let anyone tell you you can't do it um, because they don't know you. You know, you know you. Um, for me, the persistence of constantly sending applications in landed me into the San Diego Zoo that put me on a path to now be entrusted with being the spokesperson for the organization, for having the opportunity to go back now to where I graduated from. I've been three years now uh, teaching up at Moore Park part-time. And for me, that's ridiculously rewarding. I love being able to share what I've learned for my 25 years of professional career back to students who are up and coming. And so, yeah, I've, I've got this great, you said, you know, there's this dream job, but the other side of it is too, it, this, this now is more of 
who I am as a person to teach others as well through more park and through any other version, like, you know, like you mentioned social media and stuff too. So, so yeah, if it's your passion, stay persistent. Don't let one know, don't let 12 knows, um, make you decide that maybe it's not for you. Maybe I've seen, I've seen people say, well, maybe I'm just not good enough. And it's like, mm, don't let that seep into your brain. Don't let the negative talk seep into your brain that you're not good enough. It's just that you're in a very competitive situation and you know you want to be at the top of the mountain. You got to climb that mountain. Um, you can't just get there by saying, "Oh, I put an application to go to the top of the mountain. I should be there by now." Yeah. Uh, so I interviewed. It's, it's a lot of work, but it's worth it. It is. I interviewed a famous, uh, famous author, Carl Safina, um, Beyond Words. He had a great book. I don't know if you've read it. I really um, recommend it. It was on the New York Times bestseller. Yeah. But his quote. He said this quote, saying that success. It's not a matter of how well you succeed, but success is a matter of how well you can withstand rejection. Right. I think I, I, yes, absolutely. And, and I think, and I would like to add on to that, my own perception of success. Uh, I, I have people say to me, well, how does it feel to be so successful? And to me, I'm just doing me. I don't feel what I perceive as successful. Um, I think you have to realize that what true success is also not only able to withstand rejection, um, but to also recognize in yourself, what does it mean to me to be successful? You know, what is, what, what is it that I can do in my life? And for some people, you know, they look at the Instagram famous people or they look at, um, you know, stars, like uh, you name any of them now that are, that are famous and, and that's success. But I guarantee you those people are working really hard. They got people working for them. Mm-hmm. Um, and if they are content and happy with their life, I call that success, you know, and if those famous people are, then they're successful, but you can be incredibly successful, um, being a zookeeper, if that, or animal care person, if, if that is fulfilling for you and you come home feeling fulfilled, then that's success right there. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's great. Where do you see yourself? Do you see yourself in 20 years still being the spokesperson? I have no idea, man. Um, and I, I say that in all honesty because I get that question. Like, well, or in a, in a, Early in my career, I get that. Where do you see yourself in five years? Where do you see yourself in 10 years? And like I said uh, earlier on, when I got into the children's zoo and I got that full-time position and people would say, where do you want to be? I'm like, this is it. I'm ready to retire here. I see myself <laughs> in the children's zoo as a keeper until I can't walk anymore. And when that happens, I'm going to be a bus driver giving tours at the zoo. because <laughs> That's you know, awesome. Yeah. You know, I, I'm, I'm not going to retire. And so, but, so if you would have asked me that question in November of 2008, my answer would have been, where do I see myself in 10 years? Here, right here in the children's zoo. But then, show, sure, sure enough, you know, December that same year, a position opened up that, that completely took my life in a different direction. And so what that taught me there was I never, ever will say this is where I see myself in X amount of years because I don't know. I go through life uh, looking for opportunities and wondering where those opportunities can take me. And I have a measuring stick. Uh, the measuring stick is that what I found out early in my career is that if what I'm doing helps me reconnect people with wildlife and teach people about wildlife, then that's what I need to do. And if I see an opportunity and I can assess that opportunity and it doesn't, doesn't allow me to do what I need to do to be happy, then I'm not going to take that opportunity. You know, I've, I've been offered, uh, you know, you could be a host of a TV show with this, that, and the other, you know, but you got to do this. And it's like, well, let's just, what is this going to be about? How's it going to work? And I'm like, no, that's going to actually take me further away from my mark. And I don't want to be a TV host just for being a TV host. I want to connect people with wildlife. And so thanks, but no. And there's been other opportunities that have come up where I'm like, oh, that looks great. And that's exciting. And you start really peeling back the layers. Like, hmm, doesn't really. So 
in 20 years, could I be the spokesperson for San Diego Zoo and San Diego Zoo Safari Park? Absolutely. Oh, Absolutely. man, I was hoping for an open years. position, Rick. <laughs> <laughs> I was well, hoping. Well, you never know, man. You never know. You never, I will call you if it happens. Yeah, so you, you can apply. along with the million of other people who would be like, I'm good for this. <laughs> Yeah, but, you know, I, so I just, I've learned that, you know, and again, you know, four years ago, if you said, oh, you'd be teaching in Park, I'd be like, yeah, that'd be fun, but I don't see how that would work, you know, but I was able to work it out in my life that I can go up there, you know, one day a week and still do my five days, you know, at San Diego Zoo and just give up one of my weekend days to go teach. And, you know, so now I do that. And I mean, I, I love that. And then I never, again, so it's like, I, I'm hesitant to say this is where I'll be 20 years out. I'll tell you what I'll be doing in 20 years. I'll be connecting people to wildlife. Great way to end it, man. I Thank you so much once again. I had such a good time talking to you. Yeah, no, it's like talking to an old friend. This is the first time we've ever actually I know, talked, right? So I appreciate it. I think so. <laughs> yeah. And then how can how can people find you? And I'll make sure to put it in the show notes, but how can people find you? Sure. Oh, you mentioned it earlier, but pretty much across the board at Zookeeper Rick. Uh, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook are the most active accounts. I do have a Tumblr account that... I just don't, I mean, there's only so much time in the day and I do, I honestly try to respond to all comments. There have been days where I, I work a 10 or 12 hour day at work and I get home and have food and pass out. And so I don't get to, to respond to all the comments, but I, I genuinely try. I really do. I, I'm behind right now. Um, Rick, but really, I feel that really are behind. I've had people say, why do you do that? <laughs> You're really behind. You haven't even um, followed me back on I, Instagram. <laughs> I can do it right now. Oh. I'll do it as soon as we're done here. I'll do it. Where else are you? Are you where? How about you? Your Instagram? Where else? Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, <laughs> MySpace. All right, I will. I will find you. I will find you. I ain't on MySpace, man. Come on. <laughs> I may be old, but I know that's not a thing. I'm kidding. Thank you so much, man. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening to the Animals to the Max podcast. Please make sure to hit subscribe and leave a rating. It really helps me out. I also encourage you to check out CorbinMaxi.com. You can contact me there personally, even suggest a podcast guest, or if you just want to learn more about animals.